0: Thank you, Ricky, Azure, and Amy, for that ministry of music. Appreciate that very much. Please forgive me for the water. Throat's a little dry, so if I do that, I don't mean to be annoying, and I didn't bring enough for everybody, so that's my fault. Also, my hands are dry, and I made the mistake of, in the senior high Sunday school class, borrowing some of the girls' lotion. Never do that. That, that stuff's crazy. I don't know how you women do it. My, my hands are... I can't hold on to my Bible at all. Everything's slipping out of it. I don't know if I put on too much or, or what, but now my hands smell like cucumber, melon, strawberry, something or other, and... It's a bad, bad thing up here, so stay away. I might not be able to shake your hand this morning. It just might slip right out, so we'll see what we can do. Um, yeah, I've had a lot of fun, actually, teaching our senior high Sunday school class um, through this quarter because we've been talking about worship, and uh, it's been really exciting. This, this course that we've been going through, which I didn't write, by the way, is actually by Great Commission Publications, I think. Uh, it was going through the, the worship service, basically, when we gather here on a Sunday morning and, 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 it, and it's been focused on questions such as why do we do what we do? You know, what should our attitude be in worship? Why do we worship? The way that we do. And, and why do we have prayers in church? Why do we sing in church? Why do we have scripture reading in church? And I think it's been really cool to kind of explore some of those questions. I've learned a lot as well as I've been kind of leading this study and, I, and hopefully the teens have too. And so that's been really exciting for me this this quarter to delve into the topic of worship. And actually, that kind of informed me as to, to what to preach on this morning. Uh, we were talking just a few weeks ago about the subject of of reading scripture and sermons and things. And, uh, and we came to this question, why is it that we have a sermon in our worship service? And uh, And our handout covered a bunch of different passages to answer that question, one of which was Nehemiah 8. And I thought, boy, that's, that's a really cool passage. It's one of my favorites. And so I figured, why not explore that in a little bit more depth for you this morning? Um, because it's a good question for us all to ask. Why do we have a message in the middle of our service? Okay, why, why is that just something that we, we do? Especially in this age of technology. And if anybody loves technology, it's me. Um, you know, In the age of cell phones and video and all kinds of things, presentations, PowerPoints, isn't like sermon you know, giving a little bit old-fashioned? Why do we even do it? Um, it's a good question for, for us to ask, because I, I know from time to time, if you're just like the, the average person, you know, a sermon, as great as it is, as, and, and as, as much as you know it's supposed to be something that inspires and motivates you, sometimes you can just, you know, be bored with it, you know, and, and uh, I might not be all that exciting to you. That's okay, you know. And so you wonder, why, do, why is it that we sit through a sermon every week. What's the point? Well, I think it's, it's valuable for us to talk about that this morning because it is part of our worship service. And if we're not careful, we can just kind of get into the same old routine every week. And we come here week after week and we get to wondering, like, what's the real purpose? You know, couldn't I just go and read my Bible on on my own? Um, why do we do this? Why do we do what we do? And for as much as the church is associated with tradition, I get that. OK, there's one thing we're good at. It's tradition doing things over and over because that's the way we've always done it. Uh, When it comes to our our worship service, though, there's more to it than that. It's actually um, set forth for us in the Bible uh, that that sermons were were divinely uh, given, you could say, uh, along with the reading of Scripture and singing together and praying together. All these things that we do together that on a Sunday morning aren't just because of our traditions, but because of some things that we find in the word of God. And so I think it's valuable for us to explore it. I want to explore um, preaching and and specifically the word of of God. You see, uh, my title this morning is called The Power of the Word of God. And that's what I really want to draw your attention to. Not that I have any power, not that Pastor Reed has any power or any other preacher for that matter. But the word of God has power and there's a reason we do it. And if we go to Nehemiah eight, you'll find that we have a great precedent set for us here in the example of Ezra. So this morning, I'd like you to open back up to that if you haven't already. We're going to be going through this this uh, passage of scripture and um, and I'm going to explore some questions with you just briefly. What what is preaching for starters? What exactly is preaching? Um, Why do we do it? And what exactly does it accomplish? Okay. One could ask, isn't there a better way to perhaps communicate the word of God? Um, so why do we do it at all? What is preaching? Why do we do it? And what does it accomplish? Those are the questions I want to answer this morning. Let's start with the first one. What exactly is preaching? Well, we, again, we have a great example of what it is and it being done in this very passage that we read this morning. And first, preaching involves a gathering of people and a preacher. Or a teacher. Okay? And we'll see each of these elements that might be obvious to you, but uh, it kind of explains how we get to where we are today and why we do what we do. Nehemiah chapter eight, verses one through three. Follow along with me as I read. It says, when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. And he read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, the women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. So here we have a perfect example of preaching being done thousands of years ago. And, of course, we're jumping into the middle of the story, right? We're in the middle of Nehemiah. I didn't really give any time to to go over the background here. Um, But if you were to to kind of get into that historical setting, Nehemiah is written during the time of the Persians. It's after the exile. And the exile is different from the Exodus. It's important to know that. Exodus was the wall of water. Moses, all that kind of stuff. Uh, Exile happened after the kings, after David and all his sons and his sons after them um, had reigned wickedly. And uh, the kingdom was divided into Israel and Judah and God got tired with them. They kept rebelling against him, not following his ways. And so he exiled them. He he enabled foreign leaders to come in and take over their land. Babylon uh, took over um, the the nation of Judah and uh, Assyria took over the, the nation of Israel. Okay, and so in 586, that's when Judah was captured. And we're concerned primarily with Jerusalem here, since that's where this takes place. OK, so we're in the middle of Nehemiah. The Babylonians have been conquered. Now the Persians are in power and um, the, the walls of Jerusalem have been broken down ever since this exile. Nebuchadnezzar knocked him over. Temple was destroyed. The Walls were destroyed. And Jerusalem's in a pretty bad state. But in Nehemiah, this, this man named Nehemiah, who is a cupbearer to the king, requests permission to go back to Jerusalem. He's living in a foreign land. He has to go back. So that he could rebuild these walls, and in the first six chapters, uh, that's what happens: the walls are rebuilt. And then, chapter seven, there's some names listed. Chapter eight, we're here. Okay, that's a history of Israel in like two minutes. Okay, and so here in Ezra eight, um, I'm sorry, Nehemiah eight, we have the scribe Ezra, and he's on the scene and he's preaching to the people in a kind of dedication ceremony. Okay. So why is there preaching going on right here? Well, we'll get into that a little bit later, but that's just where we're at. And as you can see in this example, there is both a preacher and there are people gathered to hear. The crowd in this case is everybody living in Jerusalem at the time. You look at verse one. It says, "Everyone came as one man to the water gate of Jerusalem." And if you're to imagine a circle of, of a wall around Jerusalem, there are several gates. This is just one of the gates of Jerusalem that were rebuilt. Verse 2 tells us that everyone consisted of all who were able to understand. Okay? Uh, so you have men, women, and then this group that says all, all were able to understand, which I would take to mean children as well. Because you already took care of the other categories. There's not like a third category. There's men and women and others. Okay? There's, there is... Okay, that, you've covered everybody. must mean children in my book. Okay? So, um, everybody who is able to, to comprehend. And that... That's a lot like what we're doing here this morning, isn't it? We have everybody gathered. There's no segregated service. There's not a men's service somewhere. There's not a women's service. And we even have children with us, which I know differs depending on what church you attend. But we as a church here at the Bible Fellowship Church believe that it's important for our children to be with us in the service to be hearing all the things that we're hearing and to be experiencing and worshiping and participating with us in the service. And I think you might have a precedent for that right here in the book of Nehemiah. It says everybody was able to understand, okay? Now, I know this is a bit of uh, you know, a contentious point depending on what circle you go around in. Uh, you know, some may ask, how much can children really understand? And, and I'm right there with you. I know because I have children who are five and four. Oh, no, actually she's... Six now, I guess I should keep track of that. Amy's now six and four, okay? And so they're growing up, they've been growing up in the church, and you wonder sometimes, are they getting what's being, under, or what's being communicated? Do they understand? But, but I would submit to you that yes, yes, they can understand. And there have been times where we've had great discussions as a family, where they most certainly have understood. And I would even submit to you that it's not a matter of Can They understand. But that everybody in this room, we all understand to one degree or another. We'll find out later on in Nehemiah that there are people assisting Ezra in explaining the scriptures. So even us as adults need some explaining from time to time, do we not? Um, All of us understand to varying degrees. And all of us need a bit of explanation. So I wouldn't say it's a matter of can children understand or not, but rather all of us need varying degrees of explanation. And some of us, especially those of us who are younger, might need just a little bit more explanation than the rest. Maybe some who are younger might just require us to, to talk to them after the service and say, what did you hear Pastor preach about? What, what was the subject of this morning? Did you understand what was being said? Let me explain some of that to you. That happened with the adults as well. There were um, people gathered there who were listening to Ezra and there were Levites who had to stand along the side and explain some things. So I would say all of us uh, understand to varying degrees. Some of us just need to explain a little more than others. But Ezra is preaching to an audience. And and I said it involves an audience and also a preacher. And here we see the preacher is Ezra. We learn something about our own present day practice of preaching from even this man that's described for us. It says he was a scribe, which means that he was somebody who studied the law of Moses regularly and knew it well. He was their scholar. He was their teacher. And, and though you can't tell here, if you look back in the book of Ezra, um, it's kind of confusing because the book of Ezra has him in it. But then Nehemiah also has Ezra in it as well. So you're like, which one has Ezra? They both do, okay? Um, but he's, he's in this book, and, and he's described in the book of Ezra, which precedes this chronologically. And if we were to look back and put the two together, we would find that he came 13 years before this particular event. See, uh, people had to be brought back into the land of Jerusalem, first to rebuild the temple and then to rebuild the walls. And there was a group that came way before Nehemiah ever came back. And Ezra was one of those people. So he had been there 13 years before, and and he had been well-known by the people ever since. So the fact that Ezra is well-known, he's a scholar, he's a scribe, that's all significant. Um, And and it's important that he's a scribe in this particular case, that he's the one who's preaching to them, because he was somebody who would have devoted his life to to studying the Bible, the Word of God. and, And he knew it should be handled carefully, and so he is the one to present it. You have to remember back in that time, there weren't Bibles just printed everywhere, okay? You couldn't just walk into the dollar dollar store and pick up a KJV, okay? Didn't exist. And uh, there were just scrolls that were written by hand. And a scribe often was the person who had to write that down. It took hours upon hours and days and weeks to do that. And, And there were sometimes strict rules that if you made one mistake with the pen... He had to rip up the whole thing, burn it, start over. Okay? And this was a long scroll to have to start over with. So you can imagine that this man, Ezra, knew what he was talking about. He understood it. And he was the perfect person, if anybody was in that group, to preach. And that, that shows that preaching is often done by somebody who has studied the Bible. But I, I don't want you to think that I'm making a case somehow for like an elite class like me or Pastor... Hell or Pastor Reed or something, we're the only people who could do that. On a Wednesday night, we have plenty of individuals who come forward and study the word of God and proclaim it. We have Sunday school teachers, people who are leading day camp, all sorts of teachers in different ways. In every case, the person who is leading it is somebody who has studied it, who is studying it well. And, And that shows an important principle for us when it comes to this aspect of preaching. See, preaching doesn't necessarily just have to be up here in in this pulpit. Um, You you see, even in this context, there's no um, church built They're outside. They're at a gate. And we see later on that Paul is preaching out in city, you know, landscapes. He's out in the middle of of a road just preaching out loud. You see, even in our own church, preaching is done in various ways. It's done here on a Sunday morning. It's done on a Wednesday night. It's done at day camp. It's done in. All these different ways you can think of yourself as a proclaimer, a proclaimer of the word of God. And so there are there are listeners, people who are gathered together. That's what makes preaching what it is. But there's also somebody who's studied and uh, who is proclaiming that message and explaining it. Next thing we see. So what is what is preaching here? We learn some more things. Secondly, preaching involves reading the word of God. Again, this sounds kind of obvious, but I'll explain why I'm saying that. Verse two. So in the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men and the women and the others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Okay, so you see that the book of the law, that's what he's reading from. Preaching, obviously, is based on the Bible. And, of course, if we're doing some historical context here, uh, he didn't have the full Bible that we have today. It wasn't bound up nicely in this leather bound edition. Okay, he had a scroll and it was um, there was no New Testament at the time. It would have been the law of Moses. That's why it's called the law. The books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. That was the Bible that was written at the time. So you might ask, why was his preaching centered on the scriptures of all things? Why is our preaching centered on the scriptures for that matter? Because it's how we know what God expects from us. In Ezra's day, the people wanted to know what God wanted them to do. The scriptures held that answer. The Bible is perfect. The Bible is God's word. And I'm sure many of you know 2 Timothy 3.16, which says all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. And that cannot be said of any other book. So it is very much true that if there is one book that is worthy of our study and of our attention to listening to, it's the Bible. There is no other book, no other bestseller that you could come up with on Amazon that would be worth our time as much as the Bible. It is unique in a class of its own. It is written by the the oversight of the Holy Spirit through God's direction. And so therefore, it's perfect. It's our knowledge of how we come to know God it's it's our way of knowing what he expects what he's like um, what he has done in history what Jesus is like that's why the Bible's the center of our preaching and you might say that's kind of weird that you're making such a big point of this of course the Bible is the what else would preaching be about when you think of preaching it is about the Bible unfortunately that's not always the case I mean we take it for granted here because that's what we're used to but I remember growing up in a context where sometimes you might have a sermon that's based on a, a, a piece of news or something. Or in some churches, it's, it's a poem. Like, I, I remember sitting under a sermon. I don't know where I was. I don't think it was my home church. We were just visiting uh, another church somewhere. And, uh, and the pastor essentially preached on, on, on this poem that was saying about life. Life's kind of like a journey, like we're wandering pilgrims, and and sometimes we diverge in one direction and sometimes in the other. And then and then I, I think he made another analogy about how in the end of life we're just kind of like doves who just flow like just fly off into the distance into the sunset. And I think his conclusion was like, "Isn't that beautiful?" And I'm like, "Huh? What? I don't I don't what? I don't get it." And that that was like the whole point. So. Really, you know, people sometimes preaching can just be a lot of analogies. You know, you're not going to hear us read a Walt Whitman poem. OK, and that'll be our sermon for for a Sunday morning. OK, but so, unfortunately, sometimes that's that's what it is. That's what preaching is. And and people just say, isn't life like that? And, and everybody's like, yes, that's so profound. I don't understand. But that's that's what preaching can become. But it's not what it's meant to be. It's meant to be centered on the word of God. Okay, and likewise, it's not meant to be centered on any one political issue. There are some other preachers who would just start um, and and prepare for a week and they would say, "Okay, what's going on in the world? And, And so their sermon might be like, this is my message on my 12 thoughts on gun control or something. And that might seem ridiculous, too. But really, there are people who approach things that way. Now, it's not to say that Uh, Sermons can't touch on various political issues or issues of our day or things like that. Certainly that comes into play from time to time based on what the word of God says. But the question is, where's the starting point? Do we come in saying uh, this is my thoughts on this particular issue and this is what I want to talk about? Or is it what the Bible says? And that's why that's our basis. The Bible is where we start. That's what Ezra preached from. And preaching involves not only reading the word of God, but explaining it as well. So so in asking the questions of why do we do what we do? Well, there's a reason why we read the Bible in the beginning in in our service. Okay, there's a reason why it's either read like before we preach in the morning or it's very much a part of the handout that pastor gives on on Sunday nights. Um, Reading is what was done in Ezra's case, and it, it starts us off right. It gives us the basis for what's being said, and it gives us something to check against what's being said. But it doesn't stop there. We explain it as well. Move on to verse 7 and 8 for me. Uh, Nehemiah 8, 7 and 8. I'm not going to even try again with all these names. They're just ridiculous. I heard once that if you just read them fast enough, nobody else in the room knows how to say them. So you just, you're fine. Okay, so Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamim, Aqib, Shabbathiah, and all the others explained the law to the people who remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Okay. Names aren't important, but they are all Levites. Just remember that, okay? They are spiritual leaders in the nation of Judah. Verse 8, where it says translating, okay, I want you to look at that. That word can also mean explaining, and if you have a Bible that has like those little A's and little B's and everything, you're always wondering what those were about. Sometimes those are translation notes, and you'll look down. Or if it's a little one, it'll say uh, that can also mean explaining, where there's a little ambiguity on what the word means. And so, uh, what's really being done is here, it's either translating or explaining to the people what's being said. Okay, it's not just being read, but also explained to the people. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, you might notice there's a big difference from Ezra's example and from what our church service looks like. Namely, that there are 13 individuals, if you counted the names, um, who are mentioned in verse 7, who do this. Whereas we just have a single preacher. Well, there's a practical reason for this. It was a large crowd. Okay, Um, Nehemiah 8.1 says that everyone assembled as one man at this particular gate. Um, And I don't know if all of them were present here or not. Doesn't exactly say. But if we were to go back to Ezra chapter seven, where I said there was this huge list of names, it says there was forty two thousand people who returned to Jerusalem. So if everybody's gathering, okay, I don't care what kind of stadium you're in. That is a lie. That's overflowing the stadium. And in a day where there are no microphones or PA systems or things, it's a little hard to project. Even if this man Ezra was had this bellowing voice. Okay, which would be kind of cool if you could project that many people. But I'm not so sure. Okay, even if they were arranged all just perfectly, he had some help. He had some people who were off in the sides and off with different groups of people helping to explain what was being read. And and so that's the real reason for it. It's not that we're doing something wrong and I should have like 13 other people up here with me this morning as I'm reading they're out here explaining. That would be interesting, though, wouldn't it? Maybe we should try that sometime. Have you ever listened? I think it's like... um, on AM radio, as you're going home from church or something, or coming, there's, there is um, uh, like a, a broadcast of a service going on. I think it's like an African-American kind of service where there's a guy reading the scripture and there's another guy like explaining it. And that's done in certain contexts. And there's a lot more enthusiasm and excitement and everything to it. It's really interesting. Tune in, I think, whatever the local Lebanon radio station is. What, which one is that? LBR, I think it might be LBR in the, in the morning. And there's like multiple preachers going at it all at once. That's kind of a Maybe we should try that some Sunday morning. I don't know if Pastor would be up for that. Maybe not. Okay. Um, I think you just tell me to sit down. Um, explaining. So we got a bunch of people explaining in this context, but it's not that we're not following that correctly. It's just there are 42,000 people and, and we don't have that. So, um... It's it's explained, it's, it's read, then it's explained. And, and you might ask, OK, so if it's the word of God, why does it need to be explained? Why is there a need for the step? After all, uh, it's perfect. It's inspired by God. Why do we need any explanation at all? Shouldn't it just pop into our heads? Shouldn't we immediately understand once it's read to us? And and the answer to that is, is no, it, it doesn't exactly work that way. And that's because in our case, we're removed from the context by about 2,000 years or more. So we aren't from the land of Israel. We don't know where Beersheba is. We don't normally measure our house in cubits, okay? Even if you have a boat, you don't measure it in cubits like Noah did, okay? Um, You don't measure things in baths or cores or or bushels of wheat. Okay, we don't normally carry around bushels of wheat. We don't know how far Dan to Beersheba is. We don't know what the Feast of Booths is. Okay, because we are removed so far, explanation is needed just because of the context. And even in their day, even though this is two and a half thousand years before us right now um, in Ezra's day, there was still some need to explain it a bit. Why? Because they're removed from the original situation. They are not living in the time of Moses. This is a law written down in Moses' time. And, and these people haven't celebrated some of these festivals since the day of Joshua. Meaning these people who are alive listening to him have never celebrated it. And they're quite unfamiliar with the law of God. They, they're listening to all these laws that are being read and they don't understand what it, what's being talked about. So explanation is needed in that particular uh, that particular moment to to fill in those gaps. But it's not just to fill in the gaps. It's not just that up here we're giving a history lesson. Whenever you hear a sermon on a Sunday morning, sometimes we do that. Sometimes there's a a bit of a timeline that's given or or a map that's drawn or, uh, you know, historical context to kind of put it in perspective. But another job of a preacher is also also to kind of uh, connect the dots as far as application goes. So uh, uh, preaching also involves Application, explaining how this applies to your lives and, and helping us to see, you know, what am I to do with this passage? Not just what does it say? What, what does it mean for me? And some of that was being done as well in Ezra's case. OK, that's why explanations needed. And that's very much a part of preaching. Preaching isn't just reading the Bible and then going home. It's explaining it as well, giving the significance. There are other details about preaching described here that I won't. Uh, necessarily get into that much for the sake of time. Uh, he's on a wooden platform. It's essentially what I'm on this morning. That hasn't changed. That's pretty neat. Um, they read it from morning until daybreak. You can just be glad we're not doing that this morning. That would have been about three or four hours uh, from the Book of Leviticus, maybe. Not exactly the most exciting thing, but that's what they're doing, and they're listening attentively. So, if ever you know you feel like we're going too long here. You know, don't make me go all Ezra on you. OK, because we could we could do that and then it would just go crazy. OK, so no, we, we don't do that. You can be thankful for that. But that's what preaching is. Second question. And again, we're to burn through this. Why do we do it? Well, we, we preach the word of God because it reminds us what God expects in this context. okay, The walls have been rebuilt and now we're midway through the book and the people are wondering what does God expect from us? We want to live lives that are pleasing to him. What do we what do we do? What are we supposed to do? What does God want from us? And the only way for them to answer that question is to read the word of God. OK, and there's a lot of commands in, in there. We know they're reading from the commands of the law, because in verse nine, it says Nehemiah, the governor and Ezra, the priest and scribe and the Levites say this day is holy to the Lord. Your God, do not mourn or weep for all the people were weeping. When they heard the words of the law, okay, we know they're reading commands because they start weeping when they realize what they're not doing, and so uh, we can tell that what they're reading from is this is what God expects from you. And now they are in this land, this land of, uh, of Jerusalem, several years removed from from Moses, and they realize we haven't been following any of this. Okay, so they read it and preach it to know what God expects. Well, what if we're not living as we should? Okay, we do the same thing. We we preach and we listen to preaching to find out what God expects from us. It's good for us to be reminded from time to time what Jesus says, because even though we're familiar with the Bible, even if you read your Bible through year after year after year, you can still forget and our hearts can still be hardened. And sometimes we can hear something that's preached, something that's explained to us. And then we are convicted. We remember what it is that we're doing, our attitudes that should be adjusted And and we're not just left there. There's a second purpose for preaching. And that is that we preach the word of God so that we can know how to have a restored relationship with God when we realize what we're doing wrong. So it's not just that Nehemiah said, hey, you're doing all these things wrong. Ezra read all these lists of commands. You haven't been following any of them. And you're pretty much stuck. No, he he actually said to them, don't weep. Don't mourn, because today is, is a wonderful day. You finally read it again. And now you realize what God expects of you and you desire to turn. Okay? Nehemiah 8, 9 through 12. Nehemiah, who was governor, and Ezra the priest, and scribe, and the Levites who taught, said, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Verse 11. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. The people were encouraged. So preaching isn't just supposed to be like beating down people and saying, you're, you're not doing this. You're not doing this. You're not doing this. Feel awful about your life. OK, but no preaching involves grace and communicating the whole character of God, which isn't just his holiness, but his mercy and his grace. And that's what's communicated to them as well. There was still hope for them. They pointed to the way that they could be saved, and that was getting their lives back in line with what God expected. And that's what they did. Third reason, Okay, there are many other reasons I could get into why we preach. But for the sake of time, last reason I'll mention is because we believe it's powerful. That's what I want to leave you with this morning. And I want to show you just the ways that it's powerful, because that's that's my title after all. Okay, that I believe that the preaching of the word of God is powerful. And I believe that's ultimately why you should care to listen and why we should come back week after week to desire to hear the word of God. Again, not to hear me. Not to hear Pastor Reed or whoever else might be standing up here, but because we know that the Bible is powerful and that it can transform our lives and we desire to be changed as well. Just look at everything that happens here. I'm just going to breeze through some of these verses. Okay? The walls were rebuilt in six chapters. We come to chapter 8 and there's preaching. And look at just everything that happens after that point from 8 till 13 all the way to the end. Number one, Ezra's preaching uh, produced weeping. It caused people to cry. Verse 9, it says, people started to cry when they heard what Ezra was saying. I want to ask you, have you ever heard a sermon that's made you cry? Have you ever been touched, maybe with the, the heaviness of your sin that you began to weep because you were so sorry for something that you had done? Something that was said just convicted you, and in that moment you're listening and you realize, I'm not on the right path. I've been having this awful attitude this whole time, I need to change. Or um, were you ever at the end of your rope and pastor was talking about God being with you and just the thought of it made you cry? Have you ever teared up when you realized what Jesus did for you or how much he suffered for you? Have you ever cried in thinking about heaven? What a wonderful world it will be when Christ comes again and remakes this entire world. I know that that one's made me cry on a number of times, a number of occasions. Has preaching ever made you cry when you hear the word of God? The word of God can do that. Number two, the word of God can cause you to rejoice. The people were encouraged not to weep. Instead, they sat down and they ate and they drank and they rejoiced because God had been merciful to them. Verse 12, you'll see that. The Bible can cause us to celebrate, to rejoice, to be happy. Preaching of the word of God can cause us to want to learn more. Verse 13 says, then on the second day, the heads of the father's households of all the people, the priests and the Levites were gathered to Ezra, the scribes, so they might gain insight into the words of the law. So get this. They had just been standing there for like three hours listening to Ezra preach, hearing all the things that they hadn't done. And they, they began to tear up a little bit because they realized they hadn't been doing any of this. Nehemiah said, no. Don't worry, it's going to be all right. And then later they come back to Ezra and say, we want to hear more. What else can we do? What else does God require? The Bible can make you do that. Even in things that convict you like crazy. It can make you say, well, that's amazing. Like I, need to, I want to live my life for Christ. What else can I do? How else can I serve him? Preaching the word can also cause us to repent and totally turn our lives around. That's what happened for the Jews in Ezra's day, um, first, they immediately got the materials needed to be to, to celebrate this feast of of booths, feast of tabernacles. It'll say we don't have time to get into that, but, but they immediately did that. Then they confessed their sins. That was in chapter nine, verse one, chapter nine, verse two. They, they make a renewed commitment to follow the Lord in writing. And uh, chapter nine, verse 38, um, it says that because of this, we're making an agreement in writing. And finally, it changed how they they spent their money. They decided to devote some of their money to actually giving toward the temple. All of this, none none of that happened in the first six verses. I mean, first six chapters where they built the walls. But it did happen after the word was preached. There is a tremendous difference between the first six chapters and then the last ones after Ezra comes on the scene. And my last encouragement to you this morning is just to desire to be here. Desire to be here on a Sunday morning and ask yourself, what is it that God would have me to know this morning? Because the word of God is powerful. You know it from the past. There has been a time, I'm sure, where it's touched you in a certain way, where the the Bible came alive to you. It affected your emotions. It affected your actions. It motivated you to do something. And that's the power we see displayed here. And it's what God can do when we come and listen to what he has to say to us when we gather for worship. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You for the Word of God, which is powerful, which is able to transform our lives and motivate us, cause us to repent, to weep, to celebrate, to do all sorts of things, to worship You more fully. God, I pray that we would desire that, that we would ask ourselves, what is it that You desire to teach us through Your Word? May we just be eager to hear week after week, to to look into Your Word, to study more as we consider proclaiming the Word of God and reading it and, and hearing it proclaimed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.